Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, I'm on the trail. It's the Lion Mountain Trail. Ken wanted to get a look at Mike Gogan's 3,000-acre property, which is somewhere above Whitefish, up in the mountains. And I'm heading towards Beaver Lake because I'm supposed to... If Gogan was running a, quote, sexual enterprise of some kind, this might be the headquarters. So Ken was hiking into what is literally called Gogan's Gully, the woods around Mike's compound. I'm just walking, but I just passed some honeysuckle. We'd asked Ken to record everything at all times, and he took that task to heart. I love honeysuckle. Reminds me of when I was a kid. I think I have to go two and a half miles till I get to his property. The compound Ken was headed towards is massive, one of the largest private homes in the U.S. And yet you can't see it from anywhere obvious. Matt had been there when he worked for Mike. And Matt told us there's a whole basement compound complete with an indoor shooting range, like his own bat cave. Okay, so now I'm walking down Mike Gogan's driveway, apparently. There must be, like, God knows, ten entrances, but I've seen two of them now. Anyway, I'm just walking down this road. Ken, remember, knows how to be careful. As a reporter, he's hung around cocaine traffickers in Brazil and Colombia. He's found himself a mile from the ISIS front lines. He's covered corruption, arms trafficking, prostitution, on and on, all over the world. Okay, goddammit. I'm already out of breath, as you can tell. Okay, so maybe not the best hiker. It's fucking hard. It's uphill. But a resourceful snoop, which was especially useful while we were trying to stay off Mike's radar. It briefly occurred to me that I'm not nervous out here, but better safe than sorry, of course. So I was thinking of sending this recording now just so you'd have it. Some of the stuff Matt was telling us that was also in the lawsuit was making me and Ken paranoid that Mike employed security professionals and hackers to monitor anyone who might cause him trouble. And that could definitely include us. I've got an Albanian IP because I'm using the VPN. I guess I could switch it from Albania. Let me change it to somewhere else. Then I can probably send. Okay, so now the VPN says I'm in Brazil. So if somebody's monitoring this, they're not going to know what the fuck is going on. Only the birds. Tweet. But let me try to send this one. So here goes. Ken sent his audio and kept walking until he reached a wrought iron gate decorated with trees and bears. Suddenly, a staticky voice crackled through the air. What are you doing? A security guard via intercom. Just taking a photo of your beautiful gate, says Ken. Okay, I just passed some shit on the trail. Definitely way too small to be a bear. What's a baby bear? That's all I fucking need, a baby grizzly. This is Cover Story, Season 2, Seed Money. We had Matt's take on Gogan, a venture capitalist hiding out in a mountain mansion while allegedly running a sexual enterprise. And now, 
we needed to fill out our own picture of who this billionaire was. Was he Silicon Valley's Jeffrey Epstein? And if he wasn't, then why was his ex-best friend accusing him of sex trafficking? Why did a woman he'd met in a strip club shoot a gun in her room and another sue him for $40 million? Filling out this picture was not going to be easy because, Matt was telling us, Mike was a supervillain, passing himself off very effectively as a superhero. He spent a lot of time and, and effort and money to build up this facade, you know, that he's a rescue guy. I hope I'm not asking this question out of school, but I just keep hearing this thing about how he's got this Batman persona. This is Ken, back in the cabin, talking to the ex-spies about what drives Mike Gogan. It seems to me that he viewed you guys with sort of excitement because he's a wannabe. He's not really Batman. He wants to be I Batman. I don't even know what you guys are talking about with this Batman. I was a beat behind Ken here. All of you are talking about it. What, what are you talking about? He, that, that's actually a great question because it's a huge part of the, the facade and the persona. So when I first met him, we decided to exchange numbers. And I'm very funny about putting people's names in my phone. Matt had spent part of his career protecting Saudi royals and other billionaires, and it was standard practice not to put, say, crown prince this and that in your cell contacts. So I wasn't going to put Mike Gogan in there. So I asked him, like, hey, do you have, like, a pseudonym or something I could put here? And he says Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne. Batman's secret identity. And I, like, try not to laugh, but it's like, this fucking guy's being serious. I mean, he wears Batman underwear. Swear to God, I even took a... I took a fucking picture of him because nobody would believe that. In his Batman underwear? So Under Armour, which I didn't know this, Under Armour makes these uh, character underwear, and they're bright yellow with black Batman symbols all over them. Do you have I actually took a pair of his because I, I had, my wife thought I was full of shit. Okay, so Matt's picture is not of Mike in the underwear, so proves nothing. But there were other smoking guns or smoking Batmobile missiles or whatever. Like Mike called himself Batman234 on one of his encrypted messaging apps. And then there was this birthday party his friends threw for him. In Vegas, like an actual guy in a full Batman suit came out with a drum set. And then the girls that worked in the club, they come out with uh, pictures of his face superimposed on like cardboard Batman cutouts. weird. I mean, what does the Batman mean? I think because he's got like a secret cave and he's... A secret life. Wait, wait, wait. Is Batman a superhero thing? A spy thing? Like, if you're living a secret life and you have a, a t-shirt on that says, I live a secret life, you're not really doing a good job with the secret life. I was possibly taking this Batman thing too seriously. It's just a costume, Hannah. So thank God for Ken, who, good reporter that he is, okay. started talking to the real-life, actual Michael Gogan to get a sense of how he tells his own story. Mike, the first thing I want to talk about is you. Well, I, was, I grew up in Bedford, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. My dad um, worked several jobs and put, he had to support the family of six kids in a relatively small house. Ken met Mike in his office in Whitefish, and despite everything we've been told, it did not feel like facing down a villain mastermind. Just like talking to a business guy in a dress shirt and jeans. And I was just petrified about making a living. I, I, he did look nervous, 
and pluck at his arm hairs. I had this concept of how do you feed yourself? And I looked at this thing called electrical engineering, seemed to make decent starting salaries. But mostly, Mike was kind of mild. Maybe the word is deliberate. Um, I know th- this is a question that you may say is beyond... Although, who wouldn't be deliberate if they were being asked about an alleged sexual enterprise? There's no skeletons other than that I've dated multiple women for a while there in parallel. Or even just sex? There were relationships, you know, people I cared about. Nothing yucky or things that you'd really be, you know, hyper-embarrassed about. I want to ask about one woman in particular. The I think she was a dancer at Spearmint Rhino. The one we heard shooting a gun in her room. She was the one who was th- sending you very threatening emails. Yeah, uh, Surprisingly, this is not a woman I dated. I did not. Uh, I met her. And we talked about maybe getting lunch together, and we traded numbers. It was very beautiful, I think, Ukrainian or something. Never dated, never had any physical contact, nothing like that. Years later, I get a message from her. I guess she still had my phone number. She said, someone's stalking me. Somebody keeps being in my head, telling me to do things. I need to know if it's you. So this is loosely the same set of facts we'd gotten from Matt back at the cabin. You know, I met a woman once, not denying it was at a strip club. Later, I got a voicemail message from her, and it was totally unhinged. But Matt implied it was part of a pattern of preying on vulnerable women. And in Mike's version, he's the good guy. I was like, well, have you gone to a doctor, maybe? You know, and no, 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 no. I know I'm perfectly saying this is in my mind. So I called, uh, reported to... Las Vegas police, just out of empathy, tried to see, is there anything going to be done, you know, here? Matt had shown us a message where Mike called her that hot, batshit, crazy chick. But Mike told us he regretted calling her that. And he showed us messages where he's sweetly urging her to get medical care. In many of Mike's stories about himself, his motivations were pure. Like, remember when Mike gave Matt a roll of cash at Spearmint Rhino? In Mike's version... He was just doing his civic duty. Here I am thinking he's, you know, poor, essentially government employee, and we're at this very expensive place. And I think it was more like a thousand or two thousand dollars in cash I gave him. And I said, "Here, you know, spend it." Um, and he spent every penny. So, um, <laughs> and I think he had quite a good time. Mike even showed us a text to back this up. It's official. Matt wrote him, "Your seed money for entertainment is now gone. Get some rest or pussy. Hopefully, pussy." Thanks for being a normal, generous guy. It was when Ken asked Mike about his love of Batman that I started to understand something essential about the guy. Is there some association you have with Batman as, like, you know, a superhero you admire for some reason or another? super, you know, overplayed by... Mike was like, come on. Matt is exaggerating this whole Batman thing. And he definitely doesn't remember giving Bruce Wayne as his code name. But he also told us he does have a bit of a hero complex. A bit of a hero complex. I Maybe I watched too many Disney cartoons where the, the hero swoops in and sort of saves the day, and it, it just feels good. So the, it could be business, it could be you know healthcare, it could be science, or it could be literal. <laughs> Somebody literally needs help, as in they're going to die. Mike Ogan has literally come to the rescue for some people. During the mass shooting at the Las Vegas concert, he ran in while others ran out. Here he is on CNN afterwards. Some small percentage of evil, I think, in humanity. But 
an incident like the other night showed that the vast majority of people have such goodness in them and, and bravery. So you have to keep, keep it in perspective. Mike also started his own rescue operation in Montana, where he himself actually comes to the rescue. Pleasure to see you here. Like in this ABC Fox News Montana segment. Michael Gogan and Paul Chofi meet for the first time. Six months after Two Bear Air, a search and rescue operation based in Whitefish, Montana, found Chofi dying on the side of a mountain. Two Bear Air, a fleet of rescue helicopters Mike funds in Whitefish, which is super helpful in a town with mountains and sudden bad weather. Mike even trained as an EMT so he could do some of the rescues himself which he told Ken is maybe the reason people compare him to Batman. So, you know, middle of 4 a.m., you get a phone call and essentially you change into your costume, which is all the crazy gear you have to wear when you hang out of a helicopter at night and rescue someone off a cliff. And then you're back to your normal life the next day. And, um, it saved my life. It saved my life. In the news segment, Gogan is genuinely Boy Scout beaming in front of a helicopter as the man he rescued shakes his hand. He says thank you to the man responsible for saving him, the Bruce Wayne, who single-handedly funds Two Bear Air. They mention Batman or Bruce Wayne like three times in the newscast. Like Batman, this billionaire philanthropist changes into his uniform, his cape, and his mask search and rescue gear. When Mike is deciding whether he wants to invest his time or money in something, he has this thing he calls the person-on-the-street test. It's his way of knowing whether any regular person would recognize what he's doing as 1,000% good. Sometimes things are just black and white in my mind. Like when you're looking worldwide and you see genocide happening, or something. that's pretty black and white. That's evil, that's bad. And, you know, good would be trying to prevent it or stop it. Sure. Though mostly life doesn't play out in black and white, like it does in some comics. So sometimes when a very rich person gives a lot of money to charity, it's purely benevolent. And sometimes it's more of a tax write-off. And sometimes it's meant as a massive distraction. Don't look underground in that secret basement. Look up in the sky! That's Mike, dangling 90 feet in the air. Oh. You know, no risk and no, no reward. It applies to everything. It applies to business. It also applies to trying to do some good for people. And doing good for people is Gogan's new mission. Are you still there, Matt? Give me just a second. We checked in with Matt on the regular. Okay, are we ready to go? I'm ready. And Matt just kept warning us about Mike. This man will sweet-talk you out of the truth. You got to be paying attention. He's the most uh, articulate. He's the most savvy. He's the most, uh, he's very cunning. It's why he destroys everybody. We needed to square Matt's picture of Mike Gogan with Mike's picture of Mike Gogan, the picture he was painting for Ken, especially when it came to the women. Because Mike did acknowledge some years of philandering. Affairs and having, you know, multiple relationships. He did cop to some bad behavior. Do you have any regrets about? But like vanilla bad. I mean, biggest regret is a negative impact it had on the mother of my children. And the reality was I was married in the beginnings of a sort of a slow motion divorce. And I was dating women you know, relationships, you know, one night stands, something like that. It was like, you know, people I have a connection with and care about. And, and I have regrets that that was, uh, could have handled that differently with my wife at the time, could have communicated earlier. So on the one hand, we had poor communicator with lots of caring to go around. And on the other, 
alleged sex trafficker and destroyer of souls. Meanwhile, Ken was busy digging. I'll only say here, I'm not going to tell you where I got the documents. We'll be In a search for documents, 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 Ken had unearthed a treasure trove of text messages that Mike had written. They were about some of the women who were allegedly part of his sex scheme. And they didn't exactly paint a picture of a criminal enterprise, but they didn't seem like evidence of caring parallel relationships either. It was definitely gray. Like, quote, Bud, I thought you'd get a kick out of this. It's from a sexy Vietnamese chick from S. Rhino that I fuck every three to four months. She's super low maintenance and sends me a sweet I love you text almost every day, which I reply to at most once every month or two. Gotta love the Asian submissiveness. Or, Wednesday night was a quick near-zero sleep trip to LV and back to see my fave there. Then an even better trip to Seattle last night to see that hot former Casey's coat girl girl with the spectacularly sexy eyes and face and bod exclamation point she's also 24 years old a nympho and 100% in love with yours truly made for a hell of a night but I think I do need that skin graft winky face emoji another one in Austin tonight met with my blonde baby mama early in the evening and then she had to go home to her husband a normal guy would have gone to bed but I decided to go out by 2 a.m., I was exhausting a new addition to the harem. 20 years old, Brazilian and Thai mix, sweet as hell, total nympho. She's now officially in love. Not bad looking either. Winky face emoji. Another one. This is the model I had drinks with who texted me the rest of the night to get together. Picture of a woman in a dress with plunging cleavage. And this is who I ended up going home and spending the night with. Winky face emoji. Two more glamour shots of a brunette. It's not a crime to be this embarrassing. Still, it's hard to ignore the contrast between the Mike who writes these texts and the Mike who cares so deeply about right versus wrong, good versus evil. This text version of Mike seemed to view women as tradable objects. And so we kept pushing. Was all this pointing to something like a sexual enterprise? And there was something else that was hard to ignore. The bud at the other end of the texts? That was Matt. Mike, hey bud, were you able to send that package to my friend in LV, the black silk robe? Matt, yes sir, via FedEx. I will follow up and see what the deal is, first thing in the AM. Matt was not the fixer neutral wingman. There are exchanges like this. Matt, I just slayed Valerie in the new condo. Mike, incredible buddy, I can't wait to hear the details. I'm in Vegas working on a double header. Wink. Matt, LOL. We're going to hell. Or, and this is Mike. I'm back in a board meeting, but wanted to give you two quick updates. One, I gave you a $50,000 raise, effective today. Two, update on my trip to see woman's name. Awesome plus. I blew six loads in 24 hours. I need an IV. Photo of woman. Matt, Jesus. You better hydrate your ass. It may take a couple of days to replenish six loads. You really are like a machine like that, LOL. We read through these texts and zillions more texts. And Ken had to ask Matt, what are all these texts saying about you? Did you maybe, like, turn your eyes away from some of the things? Just to answer your question, yes. I'm not going to bullshit you and say, oh, well, no, I didn't turn a blind eye. Because I I did. 
What Matt told us repeatedly was that he had already convinced a bunch of people to upend their lives, move to Whitefish, and work with him and Mike on this new company. He was locked in. And about slaying Valerie in the condo, Matt told us this one wasn't real, just an inside joke, that he often played stuff up for Mike. But he also admitted he was a jerk sometimes. I'm going to say this knowing that I'm, like, in a way admitting to being, you know, a little bit of a dirtbag by having an affair. And and I was being a selfish fucking asshole. Like, I'm not perfect. I, I definitely have regrets with that. Yeah, Matt knows he did some things you wouldn't want to talk about at church or to your wife. But he told us if he gets outed in a podcast, it's worth it. If it means stopping Gogan. I also feel like I owned up to it. I take responsibility for what I did, and he won't take responsibility for any of his actions. We did talk to Mike about these texts, even read out loud to him bits and pieces of them, and showed him what he'd written. And he took some responsibility. Um, I regret sounding like a sophomoric frat boy. Especially about women who Mike said, despite what it sounds like, really were not one-night transactions. Maybe in some cases I was describing the first time I met somebody, so I just met a woman who whatever. Uh, But what I will say is those are the women that I consider my friends to this day, and I believe they would say the same. So the texts, they were just a performance that Matt and Mike were doing for each other. He's cozying up to me, and gee, I'm cool too. Look at me, you do your thing, you run around and save the world, and well, look, I... You know, I can have all these girlfriends. To us, it was starting to feel like these two guys, one with the wraparound sunglasses, the other with the megawatt smile, they were somehow complicit in whatever we were going to uncover. Each one trying to be the perfect bro in the other one's eyes. But at whose expense? Hello? After the break. Hello? One way to figure out the difference between a bro bragging to his best bro... And a criminal trafficking women is to find the women and ask, how was it for you? Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From New York Magazine, I'm Hannah Rosen, and this is Cover Story, Season 2, Seed Money. Hello? When we set out to find the women, 
We had to be strategic. Hello? Because if Mike Gogan was truly worried about what the women he'd had sex with might say, he would have eyes and ears on everyone. So we snuck around ski chalets, slipped many notes under doors. I'm looking for a mailbox. I'm trying to leave a note for your neighbor. And the responses we got generally broke down into two categories. One was, that guy? Yeah, I have a story about him, but no way am I going to say it out loud. Okay, I had some minor scuttlebutt at the first two dive bars, but at dive bar number three, I hit some potential. One bartender, for example, told Ken a story about Mike Gogan and a friend of hers from a decade ago. Um, she, so she's like, well, who is it? So I said, Michael Gogan, and she's like, oh, well, yeah, actually... I- but she wouldn't put Ken in contact with a friend. I'm not sure I want to throw him under the bus. We offered whatever protections we could. Encrypted messaging apps, keeping their names confidential, using actors so their voices wouldn't be recognized. Have you heard of girls being, like, followed? Is that something you've experienced? When our producer Kathleen started calling through a list of women... Oh, my God. We still got answers like this. You know, I'm just really... I'm worried right now. Can I take a day? A couple of times we got lucky, but I can't tell you the details. Imagine something like, we walk into an antique store, we signal it's us. A woman slips a manila folder full of handwritten notes about Mike into a shopping bag and hands it to us. Then there was a completely different category of response to how was it for you. And that went something like, Mike Gogan is a wonderful man. Mike's always been... A nice man, and, um, yeah, he's a problem with fidelity, but, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, he's not the first, he's not the last. But every time we were together, the chemistry was just overflowing with electrical currents. One woman read us a statement. Really, there was nowhere I would have rather been than with him. He made me feel so open, so certain, but free, so relaxed, but steady. It was a dream. Michael was always there for me, to catch me when I fell, to dig me out of many holes I put myself in. Some of the women who talked to us about Michael Gogan also talked to Michael Gogan about us. And why wouldn't they? Might it be a response to some of the incredibly generous deposits he made in their bank accounts? That was the next thing to figure out. One of the most important pieces of evidence we'd heard about was what's called an amended tax return. It apparently showed that Mike had paid out many millions of dollars over a four-year period to about 30 to 40 women. And it was maybe reasonable to wonder, why was he paying these women such exorbitant sums of money? Was it to keep them loyal? To keep them quiet? to ensure that if a reporter named Ken ever showed up, they would shut the door in his face. I've been told about these amended returns for over a month, and they're critical, absolutely critical. Between 2012 and 2015, Mike had failed to mention to the IRS a whole bunch of gifts he made to women. So he filed amended tax returns. And Ken obviously wanted to see them. Shit, that's the real thing. So how many names do we have? Because that's 31. Next to some of the payments were women's names. Next to others, names of companies. 
striking elegance, got $400,000. N.T. Cookies, more than $700,000. One called Je ne sais que or Je ne sais que Enterprises, that received $400,000. Remember that woman who read us a statement about Mike? I have never seen this kind of empathy in anybody else. Her two LLCs combined got a million dollars. Sorry, correction, 995000 Now, some of these may be real businesses run by these women, but we'd also seen an email from Mike to the exotic dancer who set up Je ne sais que that said, quote, I want you to be able to continue living your beautiful life the way you have been. I have an idea. What you'll have to do is incorporate some kind of LLC, he writes, with some kind of cool company name that you make up. There are other gifts from that same period that show up in his texts. Hi, my sexy sweetness. I hope you're snuggled in your full-sized bed and are already having hot dreams about us. I can't wait to see you again soon in less than two weeks, exclamation point. By the way, I realize there's one thing you could do to minimize my Montana stress. Make sure you do your best to shut down any rumors or speculation about us. Just tell your friends that even though we've talked a few times since we met, there is no way you'd even kiss me, given the circumstances. That would be consistent with your nature. Kissy face hard, kissy face hard, kissy face hard, 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 hard. Next text in the chain, the following morning. Good morning, beautiful blue eyes. Don't forget to verify that routing number of inbound wires with your bank. A few hours later, he wires apparently a substantial sum of money. And he writes, hi, sexy. I sent you that $20 I owe you for gas. Winky face. And she responds, O-M-G. Babe, I'm speechless. Then for her birthday, a couple of months later, Mike wires more than enough money for a brand new truck. They text that they can't wait to break it in together. And six months after that, he wires more money to help her buy some land, which he texts he can't wait to see and to break it in with her. Now, This woman sounds genuinely grateful for the money. Like, who wouldn't be? But when you're wiring someone stacks of money and also asking them to, quote, shut down any rumors, is that the same as buying their silence? If you wanted that giant truck, could you get it without breaking it in with Mike? Eventually, I got to talk to Mike on the record, too. So Ken and I asked him more questions about the texts, about the money he gave to women about the LLCs they set up, and Mike got more relaxed. The vibe was, ah, that stuff. Easy to explain. The LLCs, he told us, those were just a way to keep payments private for women who, say, didn't want their husbands to find out. It makes perfect sense that uh, when you wire money uh, for privacy reasons, you, you set up an LLC. The amended tax returns... That was just him making sure his records were squeaky clean, especially once he knew Matt was up in his business. Like anything that the bad guys could remotely construe as anything weird, screw it, I'll just declare it as gifts. It's the easiest way. I'll pay penalties just to be squeaky clean. And the gifts? They were definitely not about shutting people down. They were about lifting people up. I understand you've told us I don't pay for sex, and I understand that, but like you know, payments to women who you've had sex with? Like, why it's unusual to give women so much money? It's actually reasonably consistent with other things I do. It's when you 
find something you care about or a someone you care about, you know, you, you, I at least, anyway, you try to always listen carefully to what it is that would help them over time become their best selves. We'd seen that Mike gave women money for a variety of useful things, like a divorce lawyer or college tuition. Yeah, I think people can relate to it when they think of uh, a painter is going on a date with a woman, he starts a relationship with her. And they like each other, they have good chemistry, they start to actually care for each other. And uh, she has problems because she can afford to get her car repaired. And he did pretty well in his last painting job, so he pays for, I'll help you get that repaired. It's exactly what it is. Except, you know, when you have more resources, you can do more significant things. In one of my interviews with Mike, I had it in my notes to ask if he thought of himself as a sugar daddy. It seemed to me the mildest, like almost socially acceptable term for what he was doing. But Mike preempted me. What was never my thing and never would be my thing is, you know, some implied or hinted or in any way construed, you know, hey, I, you know, I want you to be my sugar daddy word. I, it's just kind of revolting to me, that, that concept. And I just, it just wasn't me, it wasn't my thing. I didn't like that concept. The, the times I gave economic assistance to somebody, my, my soft spot was when it was really at least purported to be for something. I want to go to school or I want to do this or that. Now, the huge reward for me would be you hear from that person years later and all of a sudden they're doing super well. And they'll say things like, hey, that was, that was a turning point for me. One of the most egregious allegations in Matt's lawsuit against Mike involved a teenager, a close friend of Gogan's daughter. Matt alleged that Mike had sex with her, which, remember, Mike totally denied. And the tax returns showed he'd given her mother $300,000. It turned out that the family lived not far from one of our other producers, Marianne. So one day Marianne drove out there. So I went back to the mailboxes to see if I was really at the right apartment. She bumped into a man at their mailbox. And he got really freaked out. A bunch of what he told her fed right into our suspicions. Like, there's certain information that just falls in the danger realm. And I used to work in Silicon Valley. I'd like to be employed again. Uh, we should just tread carefully. She drove out there another time, and this time, the mom answered the door. My name's Mariana. The mom eventually agreed to ask her daughter to talk to us. And a few weeks later, Marianne met up with Vanessa, the alleged teenage victim, in a park. So, um, what, like, where are you putting this? We are doing a podcast. Okay. And as you know, there's a lawsuit. I have that page if you want to look at that. Oh, am I Vanessa Doe? Yes. That's so funny. Vanessa Doe is a close friend of one. In the lawsuit, the Vanessa Doe story begins with, on information and belief, Gogan met Vanessa Doe while she was visiting Gogan's family member. Family members. On information and belief, Gogan had sexual intercourse with Vanessa Doe in or around 2011, when she was approximately 16 years old, in violation of California Penal Code, Section 261.5. <laughs> That's hilarious. What? What is hilarious? That we had intercourse. <laughs> Come on. Oh, my God. No. Okay. Um. When we finally talked to her, Vanessa Doe told us a totally different story than the one we'd read about in the lawsuit. And really, it's the kind of story Mike tells about himself. 
She said she and her mom were immigrants. They moved to California near where Gogan and his family were living at the time. And when she was in middle school, she and Gogan's oldest daughter got really close. One summer, I don't really remember, but my mom needed help. She was, like, really struggling because she was working a lot, and I don't want to get into my personal family stuff, but a lot happened, and we just... She needed time to herself. So the Gogan family offered to take me to Montana with them. And so I spent, like, three months in Montana... I think I was like 14, 14 or 15. And yeah, like Michael Gogan has never even looked at me the the wrong way. He was almost like a father figure to me back then, you know. Yeah, nothing ever. I mean, this is absurd. What is absurd? Tell me what I think. That we've ever had anything sexual or inappropriate or he would have ever even come at me like that, that it's just ridiculous. It's embarrassing and really uncomfortable to show up at people's doors asking about something they say never even happened. But we thought something awful might be going on. Matt kept telling us the fix was in with all these women, that Vanessa Doe and her mom, plus all the women who said they thought Mike was great, they were all feeding us a cover story bought and paid for by Mike. But the way Vanessa told the story, Gogan's main role in her life was like a genuine benefactor. If anything, I'm really grateful to him and his presence in our lives back then because I could have my mom back for a little bit and she wasn't like dying from stress and freaking out. She told us a story about how she and her mom went back to their home country and then they were desperate to get back to the U.S. So Mike bought them tickets. And then when her mom, who was a single mom working two jobs, needed some financial help, he just gave them some financial help. And why not? When you have that much money, (laughs) helping someone keep a roof over their head and have a little bit of freedom is, I mean, what is that, like 20 cents? I mean, on the scale of things, right? Yeah, right. I'm not here to just like be like, oh my God, he's a saint. No, obviously not. But he's just a man, you know. And he, he had a couple affairs. It's never great when a 20-something laughs in your face, but it's bracing. Brings you back to Earth. So let's get back to the basics. Definition of sex trafficking or sexual enterprise. Quote, when a trafficker uses force fraud, or coercion to compel another person to engage in a commercial sex act. So far, nothing we had fit that definition, although we were still looking. What we did have was more like billionaire who loves to be the hero, and so he gives lots of money to women, many he's had sex with. And many of those women could probably use that money. Though it was starting to occur to me, maybe that's what we should be looking at. The hero thing. We called one ex-girlfriend of Mike's who told us she'd never told anyone about that period of her life. She said Mike had come into her strip club, asked her out, and given her a couple thousand bucks to cover her lost earnings while they went out on a date. She told us he got past her guard by telling her she seemed super-duper smart, something no one in her family had ever said. The way she remembers it, he said, you're too good for a strip joint. So they kept seeing each other, and she actually liked him. And yet, there were these unspoken rules. 
she made sure that at all times she was just what she thought he wanted. Don't call too much. Don't call too little. Quote, be as easy as possible. He told her about his hero complex. I'm kind of like Batman. I just want to help, she remembers him saying. And he paid for a lot of things. He paid for her school. He paid for a therapist. And then after a few years, he just disappeared. No more calls, no more deposits, no more therapy. And she said she did feel a little like, what happened? But he had already changed her life. And she said overall, she did not regret it. She just didn't want anyone to know. What does it do for you to give in that way? I mean, is that, is it just that it, it's a very unusual thing to do. Like, why do you do it personally like that versus the way many people do it, which is through a charity? Well, it's two th- you're asking a, you know, kind of a deep question because it touches on two things. One, the fundamental driver, which is, I think, selflessness is one of the highest values I, I have in my life. I, I, I admire it. And for me, you can call the selfish aspect of it if it feels good. It, you know, so there's a dopamine hit or whatever you get when you do something and, you know, you know, I got nothing out of that, but look what that happened to that human being. Why do something direct versus charity? Mm-hmm. Like, I know a lot of wealthy people write big checks to a charity, and they get to feel good and, and hope that all that's helping. Maybe I just like to see it a little bit more directly. Mm-hmm. I think that seems to be true. It does seem that there's some there's some power dynamic or differential there. You have the ability to change their life in a real material way, and you do that sort of when you're moved to do that. It's not dependable generosity. It's sort of you, the individual person, gets to decide in some fashion, you know, you are worthy, you are not worthy. I don't know, I guess I'm still struggling to translate into a negative, a concept that, geez, honestly, I wish, you know, a lot of us wish, a lot of the people in the world behave this way, where they see a friend in need and they help them out, uh, expecting nothing in return, zero, zero, no strings attached. If there's a negative in that, I I still struggle to, to find it. Was there a negative in that? We still had more women to talk to. And meanwhile, there was this question of Matt. Hey, bud, your stories are not really bearing all that juicy fruit you promised. What's with that? Cover Story is a production of New York Magazine. This season, Seed Money, hosted by me, Hannah Rosen. The story originates with Ken Silverstein, who also reported it. Our senior producers are Marianne McCune and Whitney Jones. Also produced by Noor Buzidi, Kathleen Horan, and Liza Yeager. Sound design and engineering, as well as additional editorial help by Sharif Youssef. Cover stories, theme music by Santa Gold. Series music by Devin Clara Fonslow. Fact-checking by Bertina Chang. And special thanks to Legal Minds, Alyssa Cohen, Jillian Robbins, and Samantha Mason. Also thanks to Nicole Hill, Ryder Alsop, and Gabby Grossman. If you'd like to get in touch or tell us anything, you can send us an email at coverstory at nymag.com. That's coverstory at nymag.com. We would love to hear from you. 